welcome to The War Pod, a podcast based at Safer World asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how we create a safer world. I am Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. And I am Delina Gojo, Independent Analyst for a number of Brussels-based foundations and PhD candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence. Today, we will be speaking to Sarah Kreps, Director of the Tech Policy Lab at Cornell University, and Mesa Ismail from Air Wars. We will discuss the true risks of contemporary conflict and why Western publics and parliaments often fail to understand these risks. Sarah and Mesa, thank you very much for joining. Could you briefly describe your work to begin with? My name is Mesa Ismail. I am a conflict researcher and a UK's advocacy officer with Air Wars, the London-based international NGO that tracks, monitors and archives local reports of civilian harm from international airstrikes in Syria, Iraq and Libya, as well as from U.S. counterterrorism actions in Pakistan, Yemen and Somalia. We work to provide a vital counter-narrative to the dominant military assertion that civilian deaths are low in modern warfare and that precision strikes cause little or no civilian harm. And we do that through gathering local data of civilian harm from the conflicts that we monitor. I am Sarah Krebs. I'm a professor of government and law at Cornell University and the founder and director of the Tech Policy Lab, where we look at issues related to emerging technologies and the conditions under which countries use force. We've been looking more recently at the COVID-19 pandemic of vaccines and the role of science in modeling uh, the pandemic and continue to work on technologies related to conflict, so autonomy, artificial intelligence, and my earlier work was on drones, but that continues to be a research interest of mine as well. Thank you both. We were keen to bring you both together because you have worked on one of the most pressing issues of contemporary conflict, um, this idea of a lack of transparency and accountability surrounding conflict. Could you perhaps explain your work um, within this framework a bit more? Air Wars started in 2014 to track, as I said, civilian casualties resulting from the US-led coalition in Syria and Iraq. According to monitoring groups and detailed field investigations, thousands of civilians were likely killed in Mosul and Raqqa by the different parties to the fighting. Um, And thousands of munitions were fired by the international allies, um, alone with strikes conducted by the US, the UK, France, Australia, Belgium, and others. Yet among the international belligerents, only the United States and Australia have publicly conceded civilian harm to date for these assaults. The UK, France, and Belgium all continue to claim no harm from their actions. The latest and the major civilian harm conceding came from the Netherlands after the media spoke about the the Dutch involvement in a 2015 airstrike in Hawija that killed um, around 70 civilians. But the situation in the UK is different. So the UK has conceded only one civilian harm event in its entire war against Islamic State, despite more than 1,700 strikes. And even in that incident, the public transparency is really limited. So we have been engaged with uh, the Ministry of Defense for years on civilian harm mitigation. And we have also been heavily involved uh, in the last two years, mainly in the discussion with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office regarding a review to the UK's strategy in protection of civilians, which was published in August last year. And there have been some positive updates, mainly like the call in it and the commitment to investigate 
civilian uh, harm resulting from the UK's own uh, military actions. Um, another aspect that we worked on is submission to the integrated review in September. We did that in Air Wars jointly with CIVIC, the Centre for Civilians in Conflict, and we recommended in that paper that the UK government to mainstream the protection of civilians in conflict within the government, establish systems for casualty recording and investigation, and to improve its accountability for civilian harm. Up to date, this uh, paper is not published yet. Um, the other main uh, stream that we work with the government is actually trying to target the parliament and to engage the parliament more in this very important vital and ethical issue. And we have a small group where we coordinate our action and plans uh, to targeting the parliament, and we hope to see more like results in the coming year. So I've looked at democratic accountability in both related, a way related to what Misa was saying, but also kind of in a, a way in which people experience the financial cost in, uh, of conflict. So I, one of the kind of very defining literatures as a graduate student in my case, early in the 2000s, was a book called Democracies at War, uh, written by writer in STEM. And so this book made the argument that democracies make better choices about the wars they initiate because the public bears the burdens in blood and treasure. And this book really stuck with me. And as the drone war really kind of started to reach a crescendo in the late 2000s, I started thinking that there was a real kind of puzzle, which is we have this theoretical claim about the way democracies are designed to work. And yet what we see in practice is they're operating quite differently. And in the context of drones, what it meant is that the U.S. was basically transferring the burden of war and bearing almost no burden because drones, by definition, are pilotless aircraft. And so the U.S. was not experiencing those costs of war in blood the way this literature would suggest that they should for this accountability mechanism to work. And then I started noticing as well that the same was true in the financial side of things. So countries in the West had for many decades and centuries turned to taxation to generate revenues to pay for wars. And in recent years, instead of introducing war taxes, they instead go into kind of greater levels of debt. As I found in my experiments doesn't register the same way with the public as when people are having to pay actual taxes to finance the war. And so what we have then is an absence of the visibility of the costs and burdens of war that these theoretical arguments suggested should connect people to the conduct of the war. As the writer in Sam argument was that as people experience these burdens of war in blood and treasure, they'll kind of start to make these cost-benefit calculations and think, my brother just died in war, or I'm paying a war tax. Do I still think that this war is worth it? And the point at which they don't think it's worth it, they start to oppose the war. And we've seen in the last several decades, and including in the context of these last two decades, is that the reliance on drones and the reliance on debt means that people are really shielded from the burdens of war. And so these conflicts had continued to go on without the accountability mechanisms that are theorized for democracies. And as I've shown in my work about war taxes that was present in earlier wars where people would, in fact, as these burdens of war became apparent and were not sort of compensated for by the 
quote, benefits of the war, they would, in fact, start to push back and, and raise questions and would engage in the kind of scrutiny that was alleged to make these democratic choices about war better. And so it's kind of the two sides of the same coin, which is the blood and treasure, drones and taxes have really obscured these costs. And I think point to why the longest war in U.S. history has been this last one in Afghanistan. Thanks for that, Sarah. What I really like about your work and about a lot of the debates that happened around the use of drones more generally was that it sort of captured this phenomenon in which the war was becoming increasingly distanced from the publics and parliaments who were meant to be holding policymakers to account for the conduct of conflict. And Mesa, in your own work at Air Wars, and Sarah, maybe you want to jump in on this as well. So Air Wars, as you've already highlighted, has done a huge amount of work to collect all this information on civilian casualties in contemporary conflict and put it in front of policymakers and say, it isn't distant. It isn't a distant thing. People are dying now. And here's all the evidence of that. What do you think, and Sarah, please do come in on this as well. What do you think are the main barriers that are facing these efforts to bring accountability to these conflicts? Is it simply that these conflicts continue to feel too far away to policymakers and those that are supposed to be holding them to account? Or are there broader issues and broader barriers? Yeah, I totally agree on this idea about distant war with the use of drones. And it's mainly what we can see as a main barrier is that governments, ministries of defense don't really talk to civilian communities, those communities affected by their airstrikes or military interventions. I've drawn an example before, for example, when the uh, U.S. airstrike killed Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the ISIS leader in Barisha and Idlib. And there were estimated that between five and nine civilians were killed by local sources and uh, also NPR like did their investigation after and found out that at least two civilians were killed and a third had been named. Uh, the Pentagon still rejected that any of the, those killed in the incident were civilians, but they said that they did not speak with the, the family or the Syrian family uh, members or the attacked sole survivor. So, as you said, the data is available. Why? It seems like a, a cultural thing that needs to be fixed. I guess another aspect that fits into that is the lack of media coverage of this very important issue, which consequently leaves the public uninformed about the real cost of war. So, in Air Wars Report News in Brief, which examines U.S. media coverage of civilian harm in the war against ISIS, for example, it found out that the media's coverage was totally absent in two months, in January and February 2017, when the bombing was very heavy and civilian casualties were estimated at 1,000. So the lack of uh, media coverage for this important issue is also contributing to the problem. It, it, to add to that, there is a, an absence of, a, of systems in place within the MODs to track, record, and mitigate civilian harm. Um, and I said, as I said earlier, we have submitted our recommendations along with Civic on this important issue. So the other reason I can think of is that we want to be seen as NGOs working in this area, to be seen as partners, because we and the ministries of defense or the governments, we want to work for one aim, which is mitigation of civilian harm. So we want to be seen as collaborators in this regard. So I think what Air Wars has 
done is a huge service in this regard of awareness and accountability, because one of the problems I think has had been just a lack of data, a lack of accountability and evidence of what was happening on the ground. And that was not data that the governments were sharing necessarily, and that I think had to be collected by NGOs and then distributed and and disseminated to to first kind of have some awareness of what the ground truth is. And so I think that was a huge step. But I think there's a second part of this that makes it challenging, which is the sort of almost lack of cosmopolitanism among Western populaces. At least I would say, speaking of the U.S. public, there is, I think, still this sense that it's sort of the the people over there versus our people. And I think as long as, so, so the evidence, the, the argument about, well, if, if we lack the data, we lack the evidence would suggest that if people saw the evidence, they would feel differently. But I don't think 100% of people do. Um, and, and in fact, you know, my research suggests that there is a difference in people's minds between our civilians and foreign civilians. And I think that that suggests, again, there's this lack of cosmopolitanism implying that we're all sort of the same people, whether we're home or abroad. And it's clear that that's not how people actually view this problem. It's not sort of a humanity magnanimity kind of dynamic, but rather uh, in in some ways a a nationalism, self-interest kind of argument that as long as we're keeping our people safe, we can kind of continue to have this problem be, quote, over there. But I do think that at least a a necessary, if not sufficient condition of accountability is the data that Air Wars has collected and works hard to distribute. Thank you both for flagging this issue, both issues actually of media coverage, but also of lack of media coverage, but also of lack of cosmopolitanism. I couldn't agree more with uh, both your statements. I think what you both made me think about is what is being done, for example, by organizations such as Civic in the Sahelian space. There was a recent launch by Civic to have the G5 Joint Force, which is a Sahelian-based regional force, to report on their civilian casualties. But, for example, like Mesa says, when countries like the UK report one civilian death in a huge campaign, that makes it, of course, very complicated to then promote this type of positive behavior with other regional forces or forces where, um, in locations where we intervene. I suppose I have a question for Sarah. So the international community is focusing more and more on the threats posed by states such as Russia. And you've done some work on social media and disinformation in which you argue that that misinformation is often strategically placed out there by these rival actors such as Russia. This, of course, represents a disadvantage for liberal democracies. But I wonder what this means for transparency and accountability in both the UK and the US. Is the answer to this to throw our values out the window in order to compete with such threats? It's a great question. And I think it's a nice segue because one of the reasons that I became interested in online misinformation is that it's it's adjacent really to this issue of drones in the sense that these are all different tools of operating in some kind of gray zone of conflict. There's this almost we're not going to declare that we're doing something, right? Like if you think about the way the U.S. conducted its drone policy, certainly the strikes that were being conducted by the CIA were obscured. And 
we're seeing with Russia's use of information warfare is that it's a lot the same way, which is they can kind of, it's the plausible deniability. They can deny that they're responsible for this, much as they were with the recent hack of government agencies in the United States. And they can say, oh, this well, we weren't responsible for this. And it's sort of hard to prove a negative. And further, it's an area, again, I've done research on cyber escalation. And much like drones, the public is fairly apathetic about these kinds of intrusions. And so when Russia engages in this kind of behavior, the, there's very little appetite for escalating, not just because it's sort of the plausible deniability that it's hard to retaliate against a country without this sort of dispositive evidence that they were responsible for it, but an endogenous to that. Uh, the public isn't behind any kind of escalation. And so it means, I think, that this type of behavior is proliferating because it's a way to asymmetrically push back against a country that has far, far more resources and do it really without any credible threat of retaliation. And because of that, an inability to deter those kinds of intrusions in democratic society. Thanks very much for that, Sarah. And I think it speaks to this broader question of what do we expect this to look like in the next 10 or 15 years? And I'd be interested to get both of your perspectives on what you think the long-term consequences of both the rise of, of threats like Russia, but also this broader lack of transparency and accountability in states like the UK, the US and others. Where do you see these trends going? I think the first issue to think about is the impact on local communities. So without such accountability, we are uh, abandoning the local affected communities again, who have been through war and ISIS and all these difficulties. They have paid the highest price in the war and, the, and still there has been no explanation to what happened, no regrets expressed to them or acknowledgement of their loss and, of course, no compensation. So we have to think about how we change the lives of these people forever. Um, the second thing I can say is that uh, you cannot actually prevent future civilian harm and uh, prevent more civilian casualties without a thorough assessment, review and investigation of past incidents and without lessons learned that should inform policy development, future planning and the conduct of operations. Because with lack of accountability, civilian deaths will remain a miserable reality of city fighting as Modern wars currently are fought mainly with the use of explosive weapons in highly populated areas. So understanding the roles played by the militaries in such casualties is very important and should be a top-line objective. I think here I'm going to touch on the same point mentioned before, which is we need to consider the message that governments like the UK or the US in the lack of accountability are sending abroad, like by claiming zero civilian casualties from its actions at Mosul and Raqqa, the Ministry of Defense in the UK is providing the UK with less leverage when criticizing belligerents such as Russia, for example, who are known to take fewer precautions or indeed may deliberately target civilians or civilian infrastructure uh, while insisting that their own actions result in no civilian harm. I think what we're likely to see looking out the next 10 years is kind of a continued evolution of these types of gray zone, kind of below the radar types of activities. So one of the expectations of the 2020 election was that we would see the same type of 
influence, foreign influence, as we saw in 2016. So I think we're often fighting the last war. And what we saw instead then was within our own borders. So I think that's another kind of dimension of this, which is that we're having to kind of make sure that what has happened in the past doesn't repeat itself, but that can also kind of create blind spots where new versions of these threats arise. And in this case, it was, again, sort of domestic versions of kind of online activity and organization and influence. And to your question earlier, which I neglected to answer, is is the answer to engage in kind of autocratic censorship online. And I think that that's certainly not the answer, even though it appears to be effective in non-democracies. I don't think that's the answer. And I was somewhat wary toward the end of the last administration about some of the direction that some of these platforms were going in appearing to engage in some of that behavior. And I don't think that's the answer. I think figuring out some balance between allowing for free expression and trying to create a platform and online space that's less toxic and prone to the type of kind of organization of violence, whether from originating from abroad or domestically that we've seen possible in the last few years. But there are no easy answers here, I think. You have both addressed um, some of this. You have both answered to this question, but I think it's always important to mention it separately. Is there other ways that you can think of for states to address all these challenges that you mentioned? I think it's important for the protection of civilians to become a culture in the government and within the militaries. Protection of civilians and civilian harm mitigation should be included in the entire operation cycle, not just be a separate issue, not to be addressed only when there is a major human civilian harm incident, for example. Lessons learned, as I said, should be consistently captured and disseminated, and governments should place civilian harm mitigation at the heart of their military operations and partnerships. And the discussion regarding this important issue should uh, reach a wider group of practitioners, media, members of parliament, government officials, and the public. And it should be a continuous uh, discussion because I think the whole world is now busy with uh, responding to COVID-19 madness that uh, hit every corner. But we have to remember that civilians in conflict basically are affected and that their plight has tripled with COVID conflict and other um not to forget the financial difficulties. And yeah, more coverage, media coverage of this topic can done with clear editorial mandates for civilian harm coverage. We need to see militaries listen as well to local communities and local sources reporting on this. And the last thing I can mention is the role of civil society. They should be engaged. They should be consulted early in the process. Here, I just want to end with maybe a positive note uh, or a, a good practice example. So the Department of Defense in the U.S. has conducted a review of civilian harm assessment policies, which was mandated by the U.S. Congress. And uh, as a result of the process, we're going to see soon a paper uh, called the Instructions Paper on Civilian Harm Mitigation. The whole process was mainly with recommendations from participating NGOs like Air Wars, Civic, AOV, Amnesty International, and others. And we hope and expect 
to see this new policy leveraged elsewhere and, for example, in the UK too. And there we have an important opportunity coming up, which is the political declaration on the use of explosive weapons in populated areas, which Ireland um, has started leading the consultations in Geneva about that for asking militaries to stop and refrain from using uh, explosive weapons in highly populated areas. And we hope that governments will have a constructive approach towards that declaration. If I could just pick up on something that Misa just said about the pandemic, because I do think that this has kind of backburnered many of these issues, just because there's limited bandwidth that the communities that would address these problems are so consumed with kind of the immediate crisis of public health. And kind of relatedly, I think what we're seeing now and coming back to my comment about cosmopolitanism, is a real sense of our country first, a sort of nationalism, vaccine nationalism, for example, which is that in a world of scarcity and crisis, there does seem to be this inward turning behavior. And so we see this with borders, for example, between Canada and the U.S. have been shut for almost a year now the immediate instinct seems to be to kind of turn inward with this pandemic. And that, I think, has been to the detriment of kind of this collective sentiment that I think has to kind of underlie these bigger issues. And so I think there will have to be, it appears, some, I guess, relief from the immediate crisis to re-examine some of these more collective issues. I touched on this with the issue of the vaccine. Again, this world of scarcity. So you have X amounts of vials and who do they go to? And it's a real kind of question of ethics and allocation that I think has not been one that is focused on a broader sense of community, but sort of the all politics is local kind of ethos that I think, again, will take time to come out of. I mean, people individually have been in little bubbles for almost a year. And so if you kind of amplify that out, that's how governments uh, appear to be operating. So I do think that there will hopefully be a transition back to a more kind of collaborative, cooperative spirit after this subsides. I feel like we can almost end this podcast on a hopeful note, which is that we aim towards greater collaboration and coordination. So I'll end it there before we describe any more of the potential problems of international security. And just say thank you to both of you for what I think has been a really fascinating discussion And thank you to all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. We release every new episode on the 20th of every month. And you can listen to all previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Warpod. Thank you and see you next time. (laughs) 